please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you have one of our church Bibles, which we always encourage you to take, if you don't have a Bible of your own in particular, you'll find Matthew chapter 5 on page 759. 759. And if you have one of those good old paper Bibles, which I would always encourage you to bring to church, then you will find um, the big number five on the page. That's the chapter marking. And the little numbers that follow are the verse markings. So if you find the big number five, uh, we'll start right there, chapter five and verse one. Matthew chapter five and verse one. This is what Holy Scripture says. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take out your Bibles again and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking one more time at that portion of Scripture. There's an old story that tells of a missionary, a missionary who had become convinced that the Lord had called him to go to a foreign land. Obviously, before he could go, he had to do some training, he had to do some preparation. And so to do that, he collected books about that country and he studied them very closely. He began to learn its language and to speak it. He began to learn the customs of that country and to adopt them as his own. He began to learn about its dress and to wear those clothes himself. He began to learn about its values and to begin to exemplify those values in his own life. And something interesting happened along the way. The more he became like a citizen of his future home, the more out of step he became with his current home. Makes sense. The people around him would mock him for acting like the citizen of one country even while he was living in a different country. 
But that man held firm, and over time, he became more and more like a citizen of that land he knew that God had called him to. And finally, the time came when his preparation was complete, and he was ready to depart. And then he arrived in his new country, and when he did so, he found that all his preparation, all his work had been worth it. He found that his transition was easy. He found that his ministry was effective. Why? Because he was already living like a citizen of his new land. Over the past few months, as I've been up here, we've been looking at the Beatitudes, that series of statements that Jesus made at the very, very beginning of his public teaching ministry. And Jesus began by telling his followers that he had founded a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And then in these Beatitudes, he's describing the values of this kingdom. He's calling his followers to embrace and to practice the values of that kingdom. And we said these values are so opposed to what we see around us, so opposed to the values of the world around that it's practically all upside down. This morning then we come to the eighth and the final of these Beatitudes. Like all the others, it begins with the word blessed. Blessed means happy. Or it means happy because you have God's approval. Something along those lines. And like the other Beatitudes, this one has a bit of a surprise wrapped up in it. Something that's upside down. Happy are those who are persecuted, says Jesus. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You ought to notice something that's different about this beatitude from the seven that came before it. All of the others tell Christ's followers how to live as citizens of his upside-down kingdom of heaven. They all tell how to live, but this one describes something different. This one describes how other people will react, how they'll respond when you live that way. It says, here's how citizens of the kingdom of this world will respond when you live among them as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So just like that missionary, we're called to live in this land as citizens of another land. We're meant to live in this kingdom as citizens who who are holding to the customs and the values of another kingdom. And just like that missionary, this means we'll sometimes be out of step. We'll be out of step with the people around us. We'll act differently from them. We'll live differently from them. We'll hold to different values. We'll pursue different goals. And what will that do? How will people respond? It will at times make them angry. It will at times make them hate us, even persecute us. And so what Jesus says today is that citizens of the kingdom of heaven who are living according to the values of heaven should expect to suffer. They should expect to face persecution. But he doesn't just leave it there. He also tells us how we're to face that persecution. He tells us how we're to respond to it. And he says we're to respond to it with joy. We're to respond to that persecution with happiness. Happy. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what we'll see together this morning, and you should have this outline in your bulletin, is that we need to expect 
persecution. We need to evaluate persecution. And then we need to embrace persecution. First, we need to expect persecution. What is persecution? To be persecuted is to be treated badly because you follow Christ. You probably notice that Jesus kind of repeats this beatitude. He frames it like all of the other seven, a one-sentence statement. But then in verses 11 and 12, he returns to it and he expands on it. He's now transitioning to the, the next part of his sermon, and these are the transitional verses. And so he sort of repeats it. And in that extra piece, he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So we're asking, what is persecution? According to Jesus' definition, persecution involves insults. It involves being pursued or facing physical pain. And it involves slander, false statements about you. So to be persecuted is to have the people around you turn on you with their attitudes and with their words and even with their actions. This kind of persecution can be informal, like when neighbors or family members just turn on you and insult you. Or this kind of persecution can be systemic, like when the laws of the land are reframed specifically against Christians. But either way, this kind of persecution is to be expected. How do we know that we should expect as Christians to face this? Well, first, simply from the fact that Jesus listed here as one of his beatitudes. All of these beatitudes are meant to apply to all of his followers. And so it makes sense that if all of us are to be poor in spirit and all of us are to be meek and so on, it makes sense that all of us should then expect to face persecution. This isn't the one that applies to only some people. There's a second way we should know to expect persecution, and it comes from what Jesus says elsewhere. You remember he spoke the Beatitudes at the the very, very beginning of his public teaching ministry. We can also go to the very end of his teaching ministry, just before he died. And at the very end of that, we come to John 15. Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So he makes it very clear that those who follow Jesus will be persecuted like Jesus. Those who imitate Jesus will suffer like Jesus. So if we live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, just to say if we follow the ways of Jesus, if we live like Jesus, we'll be out of step with the ways of the world around us, that the kingdom of this earth, and people will hate us for it. But why? Why is it that people will hate us when we're simply living as Christians? We're not doing them any harm. We're not out to, to hurt them or harm them. So why would they, they hate us for simply living out these kingdom values? A few years ago, one of my neighbors, he's, he's prone to do this. He drank a little bit too much. And the next day, clearly had a bit of a hangover. And he was lying in the dark inside his house, I guess probably with an ice pack on his head or something, and presumably just regretting his decisions. Outside, our kids and the neighbor kids were, were playing together, just laughing, playing, innocent, childish fun. They were doing absolutely nothing wrong. They were just being good kids, 
having a good time. But suddenly that neighbor threw open his window and he just started to yell at them, make those kids be quiet. What happened? His condition made their joy painful. It made their expressions of happiness, of joy, just utterly intolerable to him. And something like that happens when we become Christians and we begin to live out these kingdom values, which is to say we begin to live out God's true design for humanity. Our holiness confronts other people's sinfulness. They see Christians living as God made us to live, just truly living out the joy of the Lord. And it challenges them. Somewhere deep in their soul, it challenges them. It it confronts them. It even convicts them. Some respond by by turning to the Lord through that. Maybe some of you saw Christians living as Christians and that was attractive, that drew you to the Lord. But for others, it repels them. Some respond with hatred. Some respond with persecution as they simply see Christians living as Christians. And that kind of persecution can be shown in attitudes and insults. It can be shown in imprisonment and death. But either way, it is the normal course of normal Christianity that we suffer for our faith. Citizens of the upside-down kingdom of heaven should expect that they will face some kind of persecution. Do you expect to face it? We have it pretty good in Canada at the moment. Anyways, we have this charter of rights and freedoms that guarantees freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, all these other wonderful rights and freedoms that we take advantage of, we can and we do announce to the entire city we are meeting right here, right now to worship God. We even invite people to come. Come on and join us as we worship God right here and right now. We've got nothing to hide. We've got it good. But we won't always, will we? God makes it clear that times will come when government and society will turn against us. May come tomorrow, may come next month, may come next year, next century, but it will. It will most certainly come. So our task when things are good is to prepare ourselves for when things will be bad. And how do we do that? Well, in the context of this passage, we, we prepare ourselves by simply practicing these beatitudes by following the words that the Lord has laid out for us here. I've got a question for the kids. If there's going to be a war in this country, do you think it would be best for the soldiers to to train before the war begins? Or do you think it would be better for them to wait until the war has started and then think, I should probably learn how to shoot a gun or learn how to fly a helicopter or something like that? probably better to prepare yourself in advance, right? Or or let's say you want to be in the Olympics. You're fast runners. I've seen you running around outside. Let's say you've determined you want to, to run in the Olympics as a sprinter. Do you think it makes most sense to wait until the Olympics begin and then think, oh yeah, I should probably learn to run. I should probably learn to run fast. I should practice. Or should you start years in advance? Should you start right now learning to practice, learning to to run fast? You should Start now, right? Or there's no chance at all. If you wait until the Olympics begin, you'll have no hope of winning. It's like that for Christians. There may come a time when it's very, very hard, even in Canada, to be a Christian 
For there's a very heavy cost for being a Christian, even here in Ontario. We need to begin preparing ourselves today so we're ready when those hard days come. It's right now that we need to to study and understand and deliberately practice all that Jesus tells us, all that He instructs us. It's right now that we need to know what the Bible says and then live it out. That's how we become ready. That's how we live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven who are expecting, expecting we will be persecuted. Jesus tells us to expect persecution. But something else is going on here. He knows that not everything that looks like persecution may actually be persecution. And so he tells us to evaluate it. This is the second heading you'll find in your outline. He tells us to evaluate persecution. See, there are times when Christians are put in prison because they just they refuse to capitulate to what an unjust government tells them to do. But there's also times when Christians are put in prison because they break the laws. They break laws that the rightful authorities have rightfully set in place. We don't get to just ignore the law because we're Christians. Sometimes Christians are, are shunned by their family members because they refuse to bow down to, to the family's idols. But sometimes Christians are shunned by family members because they refuse to honor their parents or they treat family members badly or they just act like sanctimonious, entitled little brats. We're not above that. In verse 12, Jesus says that his people are blessed when they are persecuted on my account. What an interesting qualifier, on my account. And in our beatitude, he qualifies it by saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And so Jesus is telling us we need to evaluate our suffering to ensure this is actually persecution and not just the consequence, even the the just and right consequence of our sinfulness. Peter offers some good guidance here in 1 Peter 4, which Steve read for us earlier. Like Jesus, he says we should expect to face persecution. So he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Persecution is not strange for Christians. This is the normal course of affairs. And I know many of you could attest that. I know many of you have suffered for your faith. I'm I'm not aware of too many who have suffered in that systemic way where uh, government has, has persecuted you, but I do know more who have had some real interpersonal suffering in the past. Some have been disowned by your families because you've rejected the family's religion. You've turned to Christ, and your family has then turned away from you. I know some of you, you've fallen out with friends because you couldn't participate in activities they were participating in or inviting you to join in. Some of you have had trouble at school or trouble at work or trouble at home because you couldn't take pride in what other people wanted you to take pride in, what they wanted you to celebrate. And I know the Lord is proud of you for this. I know He told you that before you came to Him, He told you to count the cost. And you did count the cost. And you've been willing to pay that cost. And so well done. I know the Lord is is proud of you. And it's my prayer that God would continue to bless you as you continue to honor Him. Peter says, don't be surprised when this happens. Don't be surprised when things like this come along. Now he goes on in verse 15. But, he's going to qualify this, but 
Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. He wants to be clear that not all suffering is persecution. And it's interesting, Peter lays out a bit of a spectrum here that extends from very serious sins to ones we might consider more minor. He he says you might suffer for murder. That's not persecution. You might suffer for meddling. That's also not persecution. So we can't play the persecution card if we murder someone, we steal from them, or even if we meddle in in their affairs or just treat them badly. Peter finishes this way. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so Peter does what Jesus does. He distinguishes between suffering that's for unrighteousness sake and suffering that's for righteousness sake. If we're suffering what appears to be a kind of persecution, people have turned against us, they may wish to harm us or put us in prison, we need to evaluate it carefully to, to ask What is the reason for the suffering? Am I truly suffering for righteousness' sake? Which means we need to ask, what does it mean to suffer for righteousness' sake? How could we distinguish? Well, remember at the time Jesus spoke these words, his public teaching ministry had been basically nine verses, right? He's just started. This is his first major sermon before the people. And so the persecution he's speaking about must be tied to these beatitudes, to what he's just spoken. So people who suffer for righteousness' sake are poor in spirit. It's the first beatitude. They're they're living with a humble awareness of their spiritual bankruptcy. People who suffer for righteousness' sake are mournful. They're repenting quickly. They're forgiving freely. Third beatitude, they're meek. They're living before God and man with a quiet spirit. They're trusting in God's goodness, trusting in God's sovereignty. They're righteous. They long to obey God's every word. They're laboring to see His justice, His righteousness extend through all of society. Fifth, people who suffer for righteousness' sake are merciful. They have received mercy, and so now they're gladly, deliberately extending mercy to others. The sixth beatitude, we learn that they're pure. They're fully committed to honoring God and they're deeply submitting themselves to His purposes. And then seventh, they're they're peacemakers. People who are suffering for righteousness sake are peacemakers. They long to bring reconciliation between God and man and reconciliation between man and man. These people aren't fighters, they're, they're reconcilers. So this is how God is calling his people to live as citizens of his upside-down kingdom of heaven. It's these virtues that lead now to persecution. It's those seven beatitudes that lead to the eighth. And so as we face insults, or as we face slander, as we face prison, as we face death, we need to ask, am I suffering because I'm exemplifying these virtues? Am I truly being persecuted for living as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Am I truly suffering for righteousness' sake? We need to expect and then evaluate persecution. Then we just have one thing left to do, which is to embrace it. I thought of saying we should endure it. You can see I'm sticking with the E theme here. 
could endure it, and that's certainly true. We do need to endure our persecution, face it with patience, face it with perseverance. But Jesus calls us to more than that, doesn't he? He says, he says we should actually go as far as to embrace it. That's not to say we don't pray for persecution to be lifted. doesn't mean we're, we're forbidden from fleeing away from it. We see that in, often in, in Christian history, people fleeing persecution. doesn't mean that we shouldn't appeal to law or, or plead to common sense to, to make our case before others. We can do all of those things. We should do all of those things. But it does mean, embracing it does mean that as long as we face persecution, we should rejoice in persecution. Jesus says, blessed, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not angry, not mournful, not bitter. Happy are those. In verse 12, he says, rejoice and be glad, not murmur, grumble, complain. Rejoice and be glad in persecution. How counterintuitive is that? Here's what he's asking you to do. When people insult you, people speak lies about you. People hurt you. People harm you because of your Christian faith, because you're living for the Lord. What are you to do? Rejoice. Be glad. Be happy. Is that really possible? Is that really reasonable? Is this pie-in-the-sky Christianity, or is this just for the few elite Christians who could actually do this? It is possible. God wouldn't ask us to do this if it wasn't possible. It's possible because we know that God is sovereign. And we know that nothing in this world happens outside of God's will, outside of God's plan. So in some way, our suffering is connected to God's will. It's not a mistake. It's not meaningless. It's not nothing. Persecution, even persecution, is an opportunity to respond to God's sovereignty with hope, with trust, with godly character, character that's been shaped by the Beatitudes, that's been shaped by the rest of the Scriptures. Even persecution, even fierce persecution, is an opportunity to shine God's light in the darkness. How is it possible to rejoice even when you're being persecuted. I'm going to give you six reasons. Six reasons you can rejoice and be glad while you are facing persecution. First reason is this. Persecution proves citizenship. You are a follower of a Savior who was persecuted. Even though he lived a life that was perfect and unblemished, what happened? The religious authorities and the civil authorities and the common people, everybody turned against him and put him to death. If that was his story, why wouldn't it be your story? He told you it would be your story. He said, take up your cross and follow me. He didn't say take up your pillow or take up your feather. Take up your cross. Your cross of suffering, your cross of sorrow, your cross of persecution, your cross even of death. You should expect to suffer like your Savior suffered. And so in that way, persecution is a kind of proof of your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. It's proof of your alignment with Jesus. Then there's this. Persecution displays faith. 
passing through the test of persecution displays the validity of your faith. It displays the strength of your faith. You'll never know how strong your arms are until you're called upon to lift something heavy. And you'll never know what your faith is made of until you're called to suffer, until it's put to the test. So James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Many people fall away the the moment their faith is tested. But those who truly love the Lord, they will persevere. And they'll emerge with their faith tested, proven, strengthened, validated. And they can rejoice. Third reason is that persecution shapes character. In Romans 5, Paul says this. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. You know, it takes tremendous heat and tremendous pressure to form a diamond deep inside the ground and it takes suffering, sometimes even persecution to form Christian character deep within our hearts that flows out into our lives, which means that persecution is one of those means God uses to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. Fourth reason you can be glad in suffering is that persecution equips you for service. God is equipping you through what you're suffering for deeper service to Him. When Paul writes 2 Corinthians, he has suffered deeply in life. Listen to what he writes. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. God comforts him in his affliction. Why does God offer this comfort? Paul goes on. So that we may may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So Paul knows that in his suffering, he's been comforted so that he can be made more useful to God. He can now comfort others with the comfort that he himself has received. It's through his suffering. It's through his persecution that he's been made more useful than ever to God's purposes. That's true of you as well. God makes you useful to him in part through what you've endured, through the suffering you've faced and persevered through. There's a fifth reason. Persecution produces communion. In your suffering, you experience a deep communion with Christ because you're actually joining in His suffering. The very next verse, Paul says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, sharing in His sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Persecution is because you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, which means you're suffering in Him, for Him, with Him. And God then meets you in your sorrows. He draws close. He ministers His divine comfort to your hurting soul. Then there's still another reason you can rejoice in persecution. It's the one that I think is most clear in this beatitude. Persecution provokes longing. Persecution causes you to look forward causes you to look forward with the eyes of faith to the joy to come, just like the prophets did 
when they suffered. They had a forward-looking faith. You know, there's nothing that more clearly shows us this world is not our home than persecution. There's nothing like persecution to just prove to you, I don't belong here. And that means there's nothing that's more likely to shift your gaze from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of heaven. When everything in your life is great and everyone around you loves you and everyone around you affirms you, it's really easy to say, this world isn't so bad. It's not so bad. But when you're hated, when you're mocked, when you're put in prison, when you're put to death, you understand, these are not my people. This is not my place. This is not my home. This is not my world. And if this isn't, then what is? It must be the kingdom of heaven. So in that way, persecution makes you exercise your faith. Makes you exercise your faith to believe that the kingdom is real. And the kingdom is coming. And that kingdom is my true and final home. And so you can rejoice that your heart is being uprooted from this kingdom and planted in the kingdom still to come. You can rejoice and be glad in all that God has promised and will very soon fulfill can rejoice even that there's some kind of a reward coming for those who persevere. God promises a reward for those who face, face their suffering with endurance. So for these reasons, and we could come up with many more, we sang of some just prior to the sermon, you can rejoice even when you're being persecuted. Persecution proves your citizenship and it displays your faith and it shapes your character. It equips you for service. It it produces communion and it provokes that deep, amazing longing. In those times when you're suffering persecution, God means for you to bring glory to Him by displaying the values of the kingdom of heaven even in your darkest moments, even in your deepest suffering means that God gives you suffering in trust, in trust that you'll embrace it and that you'll, you'll commit to honoring Him through it, that you'll steward that suffering well, that you'll, you'll, you'll commit to passing through it in such a way that you get to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. As a society, we're just now emerging from a time of suffering, And it was a time of suffering these past couple of years. Some of us lost jobs or had to battle very troubling matters of conscience. Many of us got ill or lost loved ones. Many of us saw our finances take a hit. Many had fallings out with friends or family members. All of us were forced apart from one another for quite some time. We all suffered over these past couple of years. Now, different Christians disagree about whether there was an element of persecution mixed in when churches were told to close for a time. I think there's room for different convictions there, but, but whatever your, your belief is on that, I think this is worth asking. Did you pass through that time of suffering with joy in your heart? Can you say, in that time of suffering or in that time of persecution, if that's your conviction, I rejoiced and was glad 
just like Jesus said. I found that to be true. I could do that, and I did do that. In this period of suffering or any other you've gone through in life, can you say, I imitated Jesus, who, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Was that your experience? Or did you find your joy going into a tailspin? Did you find yourself entering into a time of bitterness, grumbling, complaining? Did you flee to the Lord for His help? Did you flee to social media? It sure seems likely that there will be more suffering and more persecution in the years ahead. That, That seems clear. How will you meet that? How will you intend, how will you commit to meeting times of suffering, times of persecution? I know how God tells you to meet it. You're to meet that suffering, any suffering, with confident submission. And you're to meet even the fiercest persecution with what? With gladness, with rejoicing. God means for you to emerge from it all with your faith not only intact but strengthened. Your joy not only still present, but actually amplified. He means for you to marvel like the apostles did when they suffered. I can't believe it. I have been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. What an honor that we should be so aligned with Jesus that we could suffer dishonor in his name and for his sake and rejoice. This might be an odd time to do so, but I want to pause here And invite you, if you've not already done so, to become a Christian. There are lots of individuals and and lots of groups or movements or faiths that promise you an easy path through this world. The Christian faith does not. Got to be honest about that. It promises difficulty. It promises trials. It promises even persecution. But it promises something else. It promises purpose and meaning and satisfaction all of that in this life and it promises ultimately a home that's beyond this world a kingdom that is in heaven it promises joy beyond anything anything we can ever experience here on earth so can i invite you to put your faith in jesus and repent of your sins turn away from your sins turn toward jesus become a citizen of his kingdom And allow God to prove to you, and he will. Allow God to prove to you that his way is not only the best way, it's the only way. The only way to know God and to live forever in his presence. Even in your worst suffering, even in your darkest valley, even in the fiercest persecution, you can rejoice and be glad because God is with you. Because God is accomplishing his purposes, because this light and momentary affliction, even if it leads all the way to death, is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. I began this morning by telling you about a missionary who spent this time of preparation before going to the place and the people the Lord had called him to serve. And that missionary is 
me, that missionary is you. It's all of us. If you've come to Christ, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven who's living here among the people of this world. You're preparing yourself today for who you will always be. You're, you're preparing yourself here to live there. This is the time. This is the place of your preparation. And the way God calls you to prepare yourself is by living out these kingdom values and by joyfully facing the persecution that comes with them. You must expect to face suffering. You must even then embrace that suffering while you endure it for God's sake and God's glory, looking always, always to the true king, always to the true kingdom. Even while you suffer, God's will is clear. His calling to you is clear. Rejoice and be glad, even in pain, even in suffering, even in persecution, even in death. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you that, that you are good. We thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that we can have full confidence that nothing happens in this world that's outside of your will, outside of your plan. And so if you do call us to suffer, when you do call us to suffer for your name's sake, we can know we are doing so for, for reasons that matter. There's purpose and there's meaning. So I pray that when those times come, we would embrace that persecution and endure it well for your sake and for your glory. We long to hear your well done, good and faithful servant. May each of us look forward to that. May each of us live for that. May each one of us hear it, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.